Thank you, Art, Thank very you. much. I'm really grateful. Um, it's interesting, I was talking to Dre just before we started. He was here, there he is. And we were just talking about how goofy we are, you know. Is there anybody who doesn't know that they're kind of messed up? We all have these high ideals, you know. We believe in love, but we have sharp words with the people we say we love most. We believe in justice, but we sometimes find that we've been unfair in our treatment of somebody else. And in, in those moments of recognition, our awareness of our need for Jesus is never casual. It's always constant, I think. And uh, so that's one side of it. The other thing is, John wasn't my student at Wheaton. He was teaching there before I got there. So John was, uh, was uh, a big part of our computer science department and a brilliant guy and a great guy. And then there was something else. Oh, yeah. And then Donna Tonis is here. Where is she? There she is. So um, well, I used to teach at Biola every summer. And one time I said to her husband, Eric, hey, I want to show you all the places where I grew up in L.A., after I teach class tonight. So if you know LA at all, uh, my good friend from Santa Barbara came down and we all went together. We went to Tommy's Burgers. Yay. So we had a Tommy's Burger. It's a good day if you don't get shot by a drive-by shooting and you're eating at Tommy's. And then we, after that, we went to Felipe's. And we had a, you know, a French dip sandwich. And then, then I took them to my high school where they filmed Grease. And, and I took them to my junior high school and I took them to the house that I grew up in and we, we haven't been shot at or anything. It looks like it's a good night. So I said, I'm gonna show you where we used to take people to see when they'd come visit us and I took them to the Watts Towers. And, and this guy, I, I was a little bit you know, confused because some of the buildings that were built there have been burned down and other buildings were built in their place and I didn't know exactly where I was. And I, I pulled, this, pulled off, it was about one o'clock in the morning now. Donna, did he tell you this story? Yeah. yeah. So, so I said to this guy standing at a bus stop, you know, can, I'm confused, can you tell me where the towers are? And he goes, you don't want to go there tonight. A guy was shot there last night. And I said, well, I grew up in this area. I says, oh, if you're part of the hood, they're just around the corner. By the way, can you spare me 65 cents for a bag of chips? And, 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 and he said, and by the way, I'm blind. And I'm not kidding you either. And he took his sunglasses and put them on his head and pulled his two eyeballs out. <laughs> so we gave him five bucks for that one. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so... That was a shared experience with Eric. I don't know what that has to do with anything except <laughs> to show us how desperately we are and how much we need Jesus and how's this for a transition. Let's look at the text. <laughs> if you go to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, let's read that and we'll be looking at portions of this text. And he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, 
and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Let's pray. Father, help us to discover how we might grow and mature in you by being engaged in your ministry in this world, and how through that we might gain intimacy with you. I offer crumbs to these people, There are people who come here with deep needs and a wide range of interests and activities. Their hearts are full. It's impossible to believe that my crumbs can in any way um, satisfy everybody here. But would your Holy Spirit take the words that are offered and do for them what your son did with the five loaves and two fish? Would he multiply them? Would he break them? Would he distribute them in a way that each person here would hear something that touched his or her heart and they sensed that you had spoken to them individually and personally? For that to happen, we want supernatural to occur among us and we turn to you with this request and we ask it in Christ's name, amen. I mentioned this morning in the Colossians chat, we're talking about from the book of Colossians, maturing in Christ. And I mentioned that this morning from the chapter 1, verses 1 through 14 section, that maturity and intimacy with God are linked to mission. And we find this in, in some way reverberating through all the prison epistles. Ephesians, Colossians, we find it in Philemon, and we find it in, uh, which one did I leave out? Philippians. It's an old idea, and it actually goes back to the Old Testament. It also comes to us through even the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, when they'd talk about spiritual formation and spiritual maturity, they would reach back to Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, it's when Isaiah the prophet goes into the temple, and he sees the, the whole temple filled with the Lord. And the smoke of his train is filling the temple. And the seraphim are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the medieval mystics said, when they saw that, they immediately defined themselves in relationship to who God was, the holy God. And they did what was the first phase in spiritual formation, the purgative phase, the awareness of my brokenness, the awareness of my sinfulness, the awareness of my neediness. Isaiah, though, to his credit, doesn't stop there. He continues to look at God, and he sees God direct the seraphim to take a coal from the altar and touch it to Isaiah's lips and cleanse him. And that's the second phase, which is the illuminative phase, the awareness that there is no bad or evil that we could fall into, no sin that goes so deep in us that God's grace can't go deeper and that he can't cleanse us. That's illumination of the grace of God. Then he continues to look at God, and God says, there's a world out there. Who will go for me? Who could I send? And Isaiah, in touch with his brokenness, in touch with the grace of God, says, here am I, Lord, send me. 
And that's the unitive phase when we become united in an intimate relationship with God, engaged in doing his work in the world. And Isaiah says, for how long, Lord? And he says, there's, there's no terminus to this job. Till cities are devastated and people are no more, you go and let people know how much I care for them. So this is spiritual maturity. It's old, it's reverberating throughout scripture, and here it is in the book of Colossians. The mature person. 1 Peter 2.2 says, Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word that you might grow in respect to salvation. We've come to faith, we've been born again, but we're not born to weigh in at our spiritual born-again birth weight 20 years later. We should put on some girth. We should be growing. And we need God's word. Um, We were born spiritually to grow and mature. And C.S. Lewis said this, All judgments imply a standard. If I make a judgment, the judgment has no merit if there isn't an objective standard by which I can measure that judgment. Otherwise, I become self-referential. I spin some sort of sense of reality out for myself like a spider spins its web. All judgments imply a standard. So what's the standard that we need to grow and we need to mature? And this text particularly tells us um, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The standard is Christ himself. God wants to make us more like Christ. And, and I don't know about you, but if he's going to do that with me, he's got a lot of work to do. And it's okay to acknowledge that before him. Uh, it says that he's the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn does not necessarily mean first in order of birth. You have examples in scripture uh, uh, that imply some sort of privilege or the right of inheritance. Isaac over Ishmael, for example, or Jacob over Esau, or Judah over his three older brothers, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Jesus is the standard. Not that he was firstborn. He had an eternal past as God the Son. But he became a man at a tick of the clock, and he's the image of the invisible God, and maturity is to look more and more like him. We were made in the image of God, it says in Genesis 1.27, but something, something tragic has happened. The fall. Sin is basically man playing God of his own life. All the definitions seem to point in that direction. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Greek word for sin, hamartia, uh, means to miss the mark. The doctrine of sin is called homardiology. You take the arrow from the quiver, knock it in the bow, shoot it at the target. If it falls short, it was a sin. That's what it was called. For all have sinned, and what's the mark we fell short of? The glory of God. We tried to play God. We assumed a position we were not qualified to play, and we fell short. We were made in his image that we might follow him, obey him, and serve him, glorify him, and so on. But instead, we tried to go out on our own, and all the tragedy resulted. Sin compounded as man trying to play God over other people's lives. We're trying to play God in situations that we have no wisdom and no place right to be. So anyway, in light of that, we cannot function in a God-glorifying way because of the fall, because of sin. We can do some degree of good, but only in a limited capacity. Something of the image of God needs correcting, needs restoration. Um, I believe this in my heart of hearts, that we are, as uh, people who were created in the image of God, we are by nature good. 
Good by nature. The preposition by is important and has to be distinguished from the preposition in. In nature, we are sinners. In is a preposition that talks about something coming in, you know, uh, some sort of inclusion. The way I would define it is to ask you to think with me how your view of human nature affects your theology. If man is sinful by nature, inherently sinful, then we've got problems with our doctrine of God because God would have had to made us sinful and the scriptures say explicitly in him there is no darkness at all. You have problems with your Christology if you think man is by nature sinful. Did Jesus become a man, fully man? In the early councils at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, they said, no, Jesus was fully man. If he was fully man and he's not sinful, then he didn't really become fully man if sin is essential to what it means to be human. But no, sin isn't essential. Sin is an encroachment. The image of God has been marred. Then your biblical anthropology, three, four categories of man in Scripture. Adam and Eve before the fall, no sin. Adam and Eve and all who follow afterwards, the category we find ourselves in, sin. And it's encroachment in our lives. It's just ripping us apart. And then Christ and his humanity, no sin. And then humans in their glorified state in heaven, no sin. It'll be eradicated. I can't wait. I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm weary of sin in my life. So four categories of man in Scripture, sin's only present in one. It can't be the defining characteristic. Then your doctrine of salvation, your soteriology. If you see a pig wallowing in the mire, you don't kick the pig and tell it to get out of the mud. He's living according to his nature. He has to wallow because he doesn't have sweat glands. But if you see a human being living in sin and degradation, what do you tell him? You shouldn't live like that. Why? If he's living according to his nature, let him go. But when you preach the gospel, aren't you saying to that person, you're not living the way God intended. There's something better for you, and I want you to know that better way. It's very moving to me, actually. And yet Paul wrote in Romans 7, 8, in me dwelleth no good thing. What do I do with that? And I say, well, Jesus said in Luke eleven thirteen, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So Paul's saying, in me dwelleth no good thing. And Jesus says, uh, evil fallen men can give good gifts to their children. How do I reconcile those things? Are Jesus and Paul going to be in a theological debate? No, you put it in context. When Paul's talking about this, in me dwelleth no good thing, he's saying, in me dwelleth nothing of salvific merit whereby God is obligated to save me because of some good thing I've done. But Jesus is acknowledging the fact that the vestiges of being made in the image of God still have some sort of play even in a fallen world where people are broken. When I started first grade, um, one-third of my first grade class were in polio braces. You don't see anybody in polio braces anymore. Why? Because an atheist physician named Jonas Salt cured polio. Was that a good act? You bet it was a good act. He wasn't a believer, but he did something good, and I worship God for it because the Bible says God gives gifts to men, not just spiritual gifts to Christians, but he gives gifts to people, and that's part of his common grace. He gives people invention, the capacity to do things, to benefit society, and so on. And so polio has been eradicated. I believe that was good. I don't think that that merited Jonas Salk a route to heaven. There's only one thing that can get you into heaven. 
the grace of God extended to you in Christ, whereby the image of Christ might begin the process of restoration as we turn to him wholeheartedly. All salvation history is about the restoration of the image of God in us. Romans 8, 28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It's that hip pocket verse that we pull out every time something seems to go wrong. But we usually don't see what it says after the verse, that we might be reconformed to the image of Christ. We'll talk more about that tomorrow night, about how Paul says that um, I rejoice in my sufferings, that somehow suffering is part of this process of rebuilding the image and engaging in intimacy relationship with God and engaging in mission. So nevertheless, this idea that all things work together for good to those who love God, those are holding his purpose. His purpose is that we become conformed to the image of his son. It is a work of restoration that we might be deployed to do his will in the world. Colossians 1.13, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his son. And that's clearly to engage in kingdom purposes in a very broken world in which we find ourselves. Not a world whereby when we come to Christ, we are divorced and we forget how broken it is. We remember in our daily experiences of brokenness in our own life as we are seeking to grope and mature and get better. The invisible God, verse 15, uh, we believe he exists and that he has purposes. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, my close friend from college, my old college roommate, he called me up and he says, why don't you come out to... Uh, the Bay Area, and let's spend a week together. And so Claudia said it was okay to go out, and I went out, and we went to Half Moon Bay, and he had these e-bikes. I didn't even know what an e-bike was, you know? And we were riding e-bikes along the coast of Half Moon Bay, camping there for a week, and we, he said, you gotta see this one outcropping. It's really beautiful. And so we rode over to it, and sure enough, the waves breaking on the rocks below, it was incredible. And this other couple comes riding up while we're there, and they said, wow, this is really beautiful. And we're just extolling the beauty of this place. My heart was full of gratitude, and I said to the guy, isn't it good to know who to thank? And he said, I'm an atheist, and he got real huffy all of a sudden. I said, I bet I could prove to you in 10 minutes you're not. He said, try. So I said, define atheist for me. He says, an atheist believes there's no possibility God exists. I said, I don't think, to be honest with you, that you have the capacity to make that judgment. So why is that? I said, well, the universal judgment, there is no God, would require a little more knowledge than I think you have. If you go to Harvard, there's a Widener Library at Harvard with, uh, they say, 60 million volumes under that one roof. I said, how many of those books have you read? I said, well, hardly any. I said, well, how do you know there isn't anything in any of those books that might count against the judgment you just made? C.S. Lewis, I said, said if you're going to say there's no spider in this room, you'd have to search every nook and cranny to make that universal judgment. To see one, you could see one scurrying across the floor. I'm not saying proofs for God's existence are as simple as seeing a spider scurry across the floor. But nevertheless, it makes the point. The universal judgment is difficult to make stick. I prefer an honest agnostic to a dishonest atheist. And he said, you're right, I'm an agnostic. And I said, well, if you got the first one wrong, maybe you're wrong on that one too. 
So he said, what do you got for me? I said, I'll send you a book. And I sent him Mere Christianity. And I didn't give him my email address. And two weeks later, I got an email back from the guy, and he said, I read the book. I'm moving in your direction. And so, so the thing is, um, as we consider these things, we recognize that God exists and that he has purposes. And it's helpful for us to look to him for those purposes, and one of the dramatic purposes that he wants to transform us, change us into the image of Christ. I remember years ago, I love to tell this story. I'm sure I told it up here before. It's a good one. I was teaching at Wheaton, and we had a student in the class. Did you ever have Farrell Shannon as a student, John? She was a delightful young woman, Farrell Shannon. You know, she was Polish. No, she was Irish, obviously. And, and, and she, was she in class when you were in class? Was she in class when you were in class, Jason? Did you know Farrell Shannon? Yeah, she might have been around when you were a student there. Anyway, her best friend from kindergarten, she said, was going to visit her because her spring break at Brown University, Ivy League school, Brown University was different than Wheaton Colleges, and she was going to bring her to class. She says she's an atheist. I was wondering if you'd talk with her after class about spiritual things. I said, sure, I'd be happy to. She came to class. It was a C.S. Lewis class. And they came up, and I was able to visit with them for a little bit and, and ask her about the friendship that they had since kindergarten. I said, not many people have friendships from kindergarten days. I said, that's a real privilege for you. And after we talked about that, I said, uh, Farrell said, you go to Brown University. You're an Ivy League student. You must be very bright. What's your major? She says, biochemistry. I said, wow, that's a challenging major. You're smarter than I first assumed. I said, well, we talked about spiritual things in the class. What would you think? She said, well, frankly, as a biochemist, which I thought was a little premature. She was only a sophomore. <laughs> as a biochemist, I live by the principle that if I can't perceive it empirically, I just won't believe it. So let me see if I've got you right. This is the principle you live by, that if you can't perceive something empirically, you just won't believe it. She says, yeah. I said, well, would you do me a favor and set that principle forth for me empirically? I hope you see the contradiction. It's a proposition. It's not something that's empirically perceived. She didn't realize that she had been over-egging the pudding all these years. And she, she said, wow, I never saw the contradiction in my own presupposition. She said, why, everybody at Brown University believes us. I said, no, 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 you'd be surprised. There's Christians there too, you'd be surprised. They get everywhere. And I said, plus, to be honest with you, there are a lot of materialists who wouldn't go as far as you went just now. And, and, and I said to her, don't get me wrong, I love the sciences. And I love what the engineers have done to apply them to our lives. Because our lives, the quality of our life in many ways is better because of that. But I said, John Polkinghorne, the Cambridge University physicist, said, if you ask the physicist or the scientist, why is the kettle boiling? The scientist would say, heat from the burners agitating the molecules, causing it to boil at 100 degrees centigrade at sea level. And that happens over and over again. He said, but you could also answer the question, well, it's boiling because I wanted a cup of tea, and would you want one too? And by mere quantitative analysis, you could not give the second answer, and yet it has merit. Science has limitation. Mortimer Adler, the philosopher, said, in four generations we've gone from saying that which is measurable is that which is good for science for saying that which is measurable is the only thing that's important. And something in us dies at that moment. And I said to this woman, don't, don't 
uh, think I'm, I'm, I'm shining you on because I love the university and I love the four divisions in the university. We have the sciences, that's one. But we've got the social sciences. And, you, and you've, you've got uh, cultures that are constantly fluid and changing. I want to hear what the social scientists tell me about that. Uh, we also have uh, the fine arts. Tolkien said the fact that we're made in the image of a creator is interesting. We're sub-creators, he said. Uh, sure, bees build hives and birds build nests and beavers build dams, but you never see the Georgian period of beaver dam, nor do you see the Romanesque period of beehive, nor do you see the prairie architecture period you know, of, of robin's nest or whatever. We build things not just for instinctual survival. We build things and we decorate them because we love beauty and glory. What's that about? I want that division in the university too. And then we have the humanities, the world of thought, philosophy, the world of history where we could study the mistakes of the past and the good of the past that maybe, though we don't often do it, maybe we could learn from those things. And then I love literature too. And consequently, if you read great literature over the last couple thousand years, you'll find there are things that flare up like Fourth of July fireworks and they dissipate into ash. And other things that keep showing up in the literature of every age and they seem to be very human things that reveal to us these human problems that we go through whereby we need grace and mercy and so on. And consequently then, um, I, I, I think, I, I'm not clever enough myself to think I can make it as a loner. And, and sin, man playing God of his own life, isolates us. I want to be engaged in the community where there's robust thinking about these things. Uh, she came back the next year, that young woman, and announced to me that she was now an agnostic. I don't know where she's at now. I've lost track, but nevertheless... When we look at these things, we recognize that there are things that come down from transcendentally from God to us, objective things. And we find this in Christ who wants to make us into his image. He reveals to us what he has for us in that regard. In him, he says, all things were created. He goes on to say, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He gives us the capacity to make sense of things. I, I, I like Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. I don't know if you've ever read it before. John Paul Sartre, in his essay on existentialism, picked up on Dostoevsky and said, Dostoevsky said, if there is no God, there is no morality. We could do whatever we want to. Sartre wasn't quite honest in that. Dostoevsky surely had one of the characters in that novel say it, but the whole novel is an analysis of the bankruptcy of that particular worldview. You have Fyodor Karamazov, the father, and he's a despicable person, and he's a womanizer, and he has bad relationships with his kids and so on. And, and you've got Fyodor Karamazov, and he's got his oldest son, Dmitri, uh, Dmitri is also called Mitya. That's one of the problems about reading a Russian novel. You've got to keep a running glossary of the names because if it said William and they called him Bill, we would get it. But if they say uh, uh, um, Dmitri and they start calling him Mitya, you'd say, where did Mitya come from? Anyway, 
Dimitri is also struggling with the Karamazov sensuality, but, but he is in deep conflict with his father. Then you have another brother, and his name is Ivan. And Ivan is a prototype Bolshevik, about 50 years before the Bolshevik Revolution this was written. And, and he's the one that is the atheist and hostile and angry, angry at his father, angry at his brothers, angry at the culture. And he's the one who says, if there is no morality, you can do whatever you want to. Just anarchistic. There's another brother, Alyosha, called also Alexei. Alexei wants to follow God. He has a heart for God, but he's in a moment of spiritual crisis. He's trying to figure it out. He, he prevails in the book. You can read it. He's an exceptional character and a very real character because he's a person who, in the process of moving towards the image of God, the image of Christ restored in him, he's a guy who struggles like all of us do. And then there's another brother, Smirnikov, whose relationship to the family is a little bit ambiguous. There's a woman named Lizavita. She's a village idiot. She can't speak. She has all kinds of problems. And all of a sudden, she becomes pregnant, and they know somebody in the village raped her, and they assume it's the father, Fyodor Karamazov. She climbs over the compound into the Karamazov estate when she gives birth to Smirnikov. She dies in labor, and so... Uh, Karamazov raises Smirnikov, but raises him as a servant in his home. Everybody's pretty sure that Smirnikov is one of the guys. He hates Karamazov. Dmitri, the oldest son, and Karamazov have a big argument. And after the argument, the next morning, they find the father dead. And everybody's sure Dmitri did it. Well, Ivan gets a visit from Smirnikov. Smirnikov says, well, I did it. You did what? I murdered Karamazov. Because after all, you said, if there is no God, there is no morality, and everything is permissible. And Ivan just explodes. And he starts beating on Smirnikov. Smirnikov sees that he did murder. There must be something, not just people's personal inclination. And consequently, he hangs himself and Ivan goes off as a blithering idiot, and, and Dimitri is uh, picked for the crime, and if you want to find out what happens in the book, you'll have to read it. But I have to say this, the whole thing underscores the idea that as individuals who have fallen, we can't create for ourselves our own morality. We need something transcendent breaking through. The God who is breaks through in Christ and gives us not only the way we should live our life, but the way he wants to conform us to the image of Christ. It's powerful stuff. Through him, for him, in him, all things hold together. And in him, these things make sense. Creation implies intention. When a potter goes to throw clay on the wheel, she knows what she wants to do with that clay. She already has in mind a purpose for that. Dante even writes this, function precedes essence. God's purpose for you existed before he ever gave you the essence he gave you. You read in the creation account, he makes light the purpose on day one. When does he create the essences to emit light? The sun, moon, and the stars? Day four. He had a purpose for you before he gave you the lines in your life, your personality, 
the time you would live, the family you would be in, where you are in the birth order, your Myers-Briggs profile, or what do they do now, Enneagram profile, whatever profile it might be at any given moment you know, of time. He had all that in mind for you because he had purposes for you. And what do we do? We spend our life looking at this person over here. Say, wow, I wish I was more like that person. We go around dour and down. Or we look at this person over here and go, well, I'm glad I'm not like that person. And we become arrogant. And we don't look to the one person who alone can give us our sense of identity, the Christ who wants to mold us back into his unique expression of his image with the way he wired us to live our lives in this world. There's a theological feature in all of this, of course, but it is a theology that is fundamentally relational. Uh, theology basically comes from two Greek words, theos and lego. Theos, God, and lego, to say. It's what we say or what we think about God. And God is bigger than the thoughts of all theologians combined. If God is, infin if God is infinite, how do we ever get our puny, finite pea brains around him? Tennyson, in his poem In Memoriam, wrote this about theological systems. Our little systems have their day. They have their day and cease to be. They are but broken lights of thee, and thou, O Lord, art more than they. Or the great theologian Lucy Pevensey in the Chronicles of Narnia says when she sees Aslan, the Christ figure of those books, for the first time on her second trip to Narnia, Aslan, you're bigger. No, child, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. It's breathtaking. Walter Elwell, the theologian, said, all theology is mere approximation. We must seek better and better approximations. This does not mean theology is false. It's just simply never complete. You can have a sure word about God. He's revealed himself. We can know something about him. But we'll never get a last word about him. We'll never get to the bottom of him. And so the sure word gives me confidence. The fact that I don't get a last word, that gives me, hopefully, humility because I'm recognizing my limits. When I say we, there's no last word about God, I don't mean that we lack a final authority about what we can know. Uh, we have scripture. Truth is not reality, people. Truth is what I think about reality when I think accurately about it. Um, uh, this is, uh, I don't have a pen. Here's a microphone. This is a microphone, that's a true statement because there's something there that confirms a statement. This is not an elephant, that's true, there's no elephant there. This is an elephant, that's false because there's no elephant there to confirm the statement. Truth is not reality, truth is what I think about reality when I think accurately. There has to be the reality and my thoughts about it and these have to coalesce if there's gonna be something that I understand that is true. And so consequently, how do I think and make statements about God that are true. I can know some things about him in nature that scriptures themselves say. Heavens declare the glory of God, the earth showeth his handiwork. It says in Romans chapter one, that which is known about God is evident to them. For God made it evident since the beginning of creation. His divine nature and invisible attributes have been clearly seen in what is made. So without excuse, I talk to an atheist and I say, what time is it? And he says, oh, it's about 8.30. I said, how did you know that? Well, it says right there on my watch. How did they know that, the people that made that? Well, they looked at the movements of the heavens and the, and the precision and things like this. Those are interesting things to know. 
But while we can know those things objectively looking at nature, if you want to know God objectively, you've got to look in his word. And you have to discover what he says about himself and his work in the world. Truth about God is an appeal to the objective reality of his word. We get a sure word, never a last word. Let it take your breath away. If every time we read in the Bible, we see things that we never saw before, this should give us a degree of pause, and it should also give us a sense of awe. But even in this Colossians text, especially in chapters 2, 19 through 22, we learn that theology is more than mere propositions. It is fundamentally relational. Fundamentally relational. Look at verses 19 through 22. I want to read it to you talks about the Father. Now watch the hises and he's in here because the antecedent to them sort of switches along the way. And let's see if we can wind our way through this. It was his, the Father's, good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Now it's speaking of Christ. Um, chapter 2, verse 9 clarifies the fullness of deity. Jesus is the incarnate God. Incarnation, carne. Meat, right? Chili con carne, chili with meat. You know, you, you, you have uh, the carnival is where we go to indulge the flesh, the meat. God in flesh. And he comes and we can see what God is like by looking at Jesus. Through him, Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, the Father, having made peace through the blood of his, Christ's cross, through him, Christ. And we, as we read through there, we see that these, these prepositions, excuse me, uh, yeah, pronouns, these pronouns show us there's at least two people operational in those verses. And it seems to suggest something like the persons of the Trinity. This theology is personal. This theology is relational. Now think about the Trinity for a second. Um, I, I, I remember years ago, I was coming back um, from a trip, and Wheaton College has a, uh, they used to have a, an art, art department anyway. I don't know how it was for you guys over in chemistry, I mean, in, in computers. You probably had to hitchhike back from the airport, but we had, we had a limo service they would use. And I was getting picked up at the airport, and, and this guy said to me, I'm taking you to Wheaton College. What do you do there? I said, well, I'm a professor there. What are you a professor of? And I said, well, my degree's in philosophy of religion. He said, what religion are you? I said, I, I, I'm a Christian. How about you? I'm a Muslim. So I get in the car. His name was Hafiz Muhammad. And, and, and I get in the car, and, and he says, what's the difference between Christianity and Islam? And I said, well, I, I know my Bible fairly well. I, I don't know we'll ever get to the bottom of it, but I've read it, you know, I'm at 50, I just finished my 55th read through the whole thing and 45th time through uh, the New Testament besides that. And I'm on my third read through the Greek Bible. And I said, I, I read it, but, you know, I don't know if I'd say I really know it. There's always so much more. And I said, and I've read probably a fifth of the Koran, maybe a quarter. And I said, so I defer to you on matters of the Koran, but you, your, your Koran, if you want to know the difference between Christianity and and in, in Islam, your Quran says in Surah 3 that you don't believe in a God of Trinity. And I said, this is essential for us. Well, how does it work? 
I said, well, let me ask you some questions. You believe God's a contingent being or a non-contingent being? He said, what do you mean by contingent? Is there any cause for God? Has he independent, always existed, or did something create him? Oh, no, no, we believe God is non-contingent. I said, do you believe God's a God of love? Well, yeah, yeah, we, we believe he's a God of love. I've had this conversation with at least 200 Muslims. They always say they believe he's a God of love. You'd expect them to say he's just or he's good or something like that. I, I don't usually expect them to say he's a God of love, but 200 times they've all said he's a God of love. I said, who's the object of his love? And they said, Hafiz said, we are, his creation. I said, so God needs creation to fulfill his nature of love? I said, you've got a contradiction in your theology. If God's non-contingent and has no needs outside of himself, and he needs us, that's, that's incompatible. It's incongruous. I said, relational attributes in a non-contingent being presuppose there must be relationship in that being. He said, I'm tracking with you. And he saw the incongruity in non-Trinitarian uh, monotheism. And then I said, and there's another big difference too, Hafiz. It's, it's what we do about our condition as fallen, broken people who need something restored in us. I said, there's a guy named Rudolf Otto who was a philosopher of religion, and he wrote a book called The Idea of the Holy, and he saw that all religious communities have more in common with each other than any of us would have with a materialist. But even though we have much in common, those common things could be spelled out, but there's a significant difference. And I said, some of the common things are, one, all religions believe in some sort of defined Transcend, divine transcendent other. Uh, Rudolf Otto calls it the numinous. Uh, a transcendent other in whom we have awe and a sense of reverence and fear. Second, they all believe in a moral law that people fail to keep. And consequently, because of that, uh, we're, we're in a bad way. But the third thing they all believe is that the transcendent other, the divine, is a custodian of the moral law. So if we've failed in the moral law, we've offended the divine essence. And Hafiz says, I'm tracking with you. I believe in the afterlife. And I believe in hell. And I don't want to go there. I'm doing the best I can to make sure I don't. And I go, Hafiz, how's that working for you? And he said, I live in fear. I said, this relational God that I was telling you about, this is core to the Christians. We believe he loves us. And the thing that makes Christianity different than the other religions, we don't have to work our way to him. He made his way to us in Christ. That in Christ, he might transform us and change us and begin us on the process of restoring the image of Christ in us. That in that maturity, we might go serve him. He said, that's the most comforting thing I've ever heard in my life. I said, was there any reason why you wouldn't want to trust Christ right now? He said, none. And he prayed with me right there in that limousine to receive Christ, Hafiz. So we started doing some follow-up with him. But it gets down to these kinds of things that are in this passage. Paul says, as a result of all this, that he's reconciled us to himself, that he's trying to make us into his image, he says, I became a minister of that, and that's the way it should be. 
You know that God loves you. You know that God forgives you. Forgives you. You know he wants to restore the image of Christ in you. An indicator that that image is beginning to break out and emerge a little bit is that you'll start to be concerned about the people in your world who don't yet know how much they're loved by him. Well, we can end there. We'll pick it up here tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, it, it just blows us away that you love us so much. It blows us away that you put us in a world where you want to somehow not only restore the image of Christ in us, but you want to use us in seeking to impart to others that they too are loved by you, that forgiveness is real, that transformation can occur, that none of us are stuck to remain where we were at any given moment of our life, but there's a process of restoration and you are with us every step of the way. To that end, we do give you thanks and praise and thank you for Christ's sake. Amen.